0: Our Father in heaven, we thank you that uh, your word is truth and life and your word is good. And Lord, sometimes we, we can come to your word and uh, believe those things and then go out into the world and live as though they're not true. Uh, please tonight, uh, would we not be those who look in the mirror see the truth of your word and then forget what we've seen? But would we, not, would we be those who are doers of your word, as well as hearers, for Jesus' name's sake. Amen. And uh, like in our other series, uh, in this series on doubt, we're we're looking through a variety of different Bible passages. There's a handout on your seat that uh, tells you uh, where we're going, Um, and all the passages will appear on the screen behind me. And so my advice is stay in James 4, that's the passage we're going to look at most. Don't try and flick through all the others, otherwise you'll uh, spend most of your time flicking around the Bible. Oz Guinness has written a book about doubt called God in the Dark, and he says this, the heart of Doubt is a divided heart. In fact, our English word doubt comes from the same root as the word double. You see, they share the first three letters, to have two of something. So to to doubt is to be double-minded, to be in two minds. Uh, The various words used in the uh, the New Testament, in the Greek of the New Testament, back that up. They have the idea of questioning something in your mind, of hanging back or hesitating, because there's a a mental battle going on. So belief or faith is to be in one mind. I think this is true. I'm going to act on it. Unbelief is to be in one mind. I think this is untrue, so I'm not going to act on it. But doubt is to be in two minds. Uh, this might be true. Well, I'm just not sure. M- maybe I'll go for it. Maybe I won't. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we, we've seen that doubt is a normal thing for Christians. As Christians, we continue to, to wrestle with s- trusting the, the promises of God, uh, the good news about Jesus. Uh, we saw in the first week, we struggle to believe that God's word is true. We doubt doubt the truth of belief. Uh, we saw last week we struggled to believe that God loves us in the way that he says he loves us. And this week we're going to see this struggle to believe that following Jesus wholeheartedly is really worth it. Is it really worth it going for it in the Christian life? I read three wonderful baptisms this morning. And within one testimony, within the testimony of Ollie, if you read it in the booklet, you'll see the thing that's kept him back from following Jesus for so many years was basically thinking, it's not worth it. I want to be in charge of my own life. I just want to get on and live for this world. You see, we're we're caught in two minds. Between living as Christians for the Lord Jesus Christ... Or living as everyone else around us does. Between investing in this world or in the world to come. Between loving God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. Or actually just loving the false gods of money, status, comfort, children, all the things that our family and our friends who don't know Christ pour their time and effort into. Uh, So, what we're going to do tonight is we'll Diagnose the problem first of all, and then we'll look at a bit of a solution at the end. And we're going to look in the first three headings under three classic Christian ideas. Our enemies of the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're not going to do them in that order. We're starting with the flesh. Here's the first reason we doubt it's worth it. We have a divided heart. We have a divided heart. Look at James chapter 4 verse 1 with me. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? That, that word desires is the same word as in verse 3 when James says pleasures. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives. You may spend what you get on your pleasures. He says there's a war raging within us between faith in Jesus... And what we think will bring us happiness. And so when you you pray, James says to these Christians, you don't get what you want because actually you're asking for all the wrong reasons. You're not longing for what God's will is. You're longing for a bit more money to spend on yourself. Because that's what you think will make you happy. That's what your pleasure is. You see, you're longing for the things everyone else longs for. We have a divided heart. And Jesus says the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. He he says this in verse 24 No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You, You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? You see, serving the master of money is not simply worrying about having a lot of it that you might have to give up. No, it can be as much worrying about having a a little uh, that you can't even get enough food and clothing for you and your family. In both instances, what you're effectively saying is, I don't trust God. I don't believe that you're a father who knows what's best for me. I doubt that you're good. That's why Jesus ends this section by talking about our faith, our trust in God. His rebuke to those who are living for money is, verse 30, you of little faith. So do not worry saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need him. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Do you see the divided heart? Are you going to worry like the rest of the world about all the material things that occupy your life? Or are you going to first seek God and his kingdom, his rule over your life? Is your greatest desire to live righteously the way that he wants you to live? Or is your greatest desire to live comfortably the way that you feel will make life easy? You see, in the end, we're constantly in that battle, and that can cripple us spiritually. Uh, we see this in perhaps Jesus' most famous parable, the parable of the sower. Uh, do you remember Jesus explains that a farmer scatters seed, and that seed stands for the word of God. And what, does, what is it that stops that word being fruitful? Well, here's Mark chapter 4, talking about the seed. Still others, like seed sown among the thorns hear the word but the worries of this life the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things come in and choke the word making it unfruitful you see there is the problem of doubt the word of God is choked by the worries of this life we know that God loves us but but what we do is we expound a lot of emotional energy flapping through life because ah, dishwashers broken I've got a flat tire on the car. Well, the credit card bill is, is bigger this month than I expected. We have a divided heart, divided loyalties, divided loves. And therefore, by nature, we are unstable. As we pray, a lot of our prayers have to do with our worries, not God's will. James says that in James chapter 1 and verse 6. He says, But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Double-minded, unstable. That is by nature what we are. We have the flesh, the desire of our sinful heart, worries that come from within us, that mean we act like the rest of the world and yet at the same time we know we should be trusting the word of God but but it's not just our hearts that are divided our hearts are deceived as well here's the second reason we doubt it's worth following Jesus wholeheartedly we have a deceived heart that's because of the devil you see, in Mark chapter 4, the second thing that choked the word of God, well, it was the deceitfulness of wealth. It's not that money in itself lies, wealth isn't a living thing, but rather that wealth has a special place in the armoury of our enemy, the devil. Uh, right from his first appearance in the Bible in the form of a servant, Satan has used material pleasure as a way of deceiving people into thinking that God's not good. In fact, the, uh, the first lie in human history was designed to make Eve doubt God's generous provision. In Genesis 3, chapter 1, he said to the woman, "'Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden?' Do you see the doubt the serpent is sowing? God, that's not really good, Eve. He's put you in this garden, and he's told you not to eat all this beautiful fruit that's around you. I mean, it's not worth obeying him. Right from the start, we're deceived into doubting that God knows best. We doubt that obedience to God is worth it. Now, we, we don't tend to talk much about the devil these days. And I think that's probably because we've absorbed our culture's thinking that that anything sort of that's spiritual and other, we've popped into the category of fantasy and unreal. But the Bible has no doubt that there is a real personal evil being, the devil, and he's seeking day by day to drag disciples away from following Jesus. That's why our, our reading in James 4 We were urged, if you're double-minded doubters, flee, resist the devil. That doubt that comes from the danger of loving money is famously picked up by the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy. He writes to Timothy about having the right attitude to money in chapter 6. Here's 1 Timothy 6, verse 9. Paul writes, Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And do you see the words there, temptation and trap? That word trap is actually used earlier in 1 Timothy when talking about the devil's schemes. Uh, The devil lays the desire for money as a trap before us. The result is, well, do you see in verse 9, he describes Paul this as an experience like drowning yourself, being inescapably swamped by thinking about money all the time. Do I have enough? Do I not have enough? He says in verse 10, it's like repeatedly stabbing yourself, piercing yourself, causing yourself pain, but, but most worryingly of all, he says in verse 10 these people have wandered from the faith. In other words, in the battle in their minds between doubt and belief, it's drifted to becoming total unbelief. Not because they've made some intellectual decision that it's not true, but by giving into Satan's snare and gradually just wandering away from Jesus see, one writer wisely says that a mark of doubt is simply a lack of urgency in the Christian life. Everything else that the world says is important crowds in on us, and we sort of retreat from actively following Jesus. It's not that I don't want to come to church, it's just I'm, I'm so busy. And I've got so many jobs to do before Christmas. I need to, to get some extra cash so I can give the children the, the presents that they, they deserve, they want. You see, it's so easy to listen to the devil's schemes, to, to the way he draws us away from wholeheartedly following Christ. My uh, older kids used to give uh, me grief when it came to our family devotions. We do every day as a family trying to get together at the end of uh, tea supper uh, to read the Bible for a little while because what would happen is they'd kick off and I'd go, do you realise it's a spiritual battle? And after a while I wouldn't even get that out. They'd say, we know, Dad, it's a spiritual battle. But it is a spiritual battle. You see, when we doubt whether it's worth coming to church... Or when we think, maybe I shouldn't put my head above the parrot and speak about Jesus at work. Or when we think, oh, I can't afford to give any more money to mission. We're actually in the midst of a battle. A battle where on the one side is belief that says, going for it with Jesus is by far the best thing to do in life. And on the other side is an enemy, the devil, actively trying to convince you you're not. That's why it's always emotionally easier to go to the cinema than come to the prayer meeting. You've never thought about going to the cinema. Oh, I'm a bit tired and no, it's always easier to go and see the film we want than to gather with God's people to pray. Because we have an enemy. You see we have divided hearts and we have deceived hearts. And lastly, we have hearts that are drawn to the world. So we've seen the flesh, the devil, and here's the world. That was the last thing that choked the word in in Jesus' parable of the sower. It was the desire for other things. Really the things that the world around us cherishes. Now now we need to understand when the Bible talks about the world, it's not talking about just the physical creation that that God has made. Now, Now though that creation around us is fallen, it's cursed, it is still a very beautiful creation made by a perfect and loving God. But when the Bible talks about the world, it's talking about human civilization hostile to God, alienated from him in rebellion. And that is the culture that you and I swim in day by day. We desire to be part of that world. Why? Well, because, of course, that world appears to our divided hearts, and it's a world full of the devil's lies, and we love to fit in. You see, the society that we live in is not neutral. Our schools are not neutral places. I hope if you're a parent, you know that. You're sending your child to an anti Christian establishment every single day. Even if it's good, like St. Paul's, in the end, the syllabus that they have is secular humanist. Yeah? The whole of society is pushing us away from following the God of the Bible. Our upbringings tend to not be neutral. And those all feed our doubts. They they glorify things that draw us away from following Christ. And that's why James is so blunt. Do you remember what he said in James chapter 4 and verse 4? You adulterous people. Don't you know that, that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of god or do you think that scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us you see you can't be comfortable with the world's desires and a friend of god says james i think there's probably rarely been a generation of christians more friendly with the world than we are Uh, It's one of the shocks, isn't it, we have at the moment, that suddenly the world out there, our culture, is giving us a hard time for following Jesus Christ. It's not just that we don't see how much we're influenced by our culture. Uh, I think that that part of the problem we have with our culture has been a, a backlash against some of the Christian legalism of the past if maybe our grandparents' generation didn't go dancing and didn't go to the cinema and were teetotal and wouldn't go to the pub, uh, we think, oh no, well what we need to do is demonstrate that we can be free in Christ and do all of those things. But, but actually our danger is, not that we separate from the world around us, but we embrace the world. As we embrace the world, we doubt that living wholeheartedly for Jesus... ...is realistic, let alone an attractive thing to do. And James says that's not a minor issue. James says we're committing spiritual adultery. Our our doubts are played out in our our mixed loves. Uh, That means that we're like a married woman... ...who kisses her husband on the cheek as she leaves home in the morning... ...thanks him for picking up the kids for nursery... ...because she's got a meeting late tonight knowing full well she's going around to a hotel just around the corner from the office to have sex with a man she's met on Tinder. That is the emotional reality of loving the world. We're spiritual adulterers. And we need to therefore be very aware that that our, our love for this life, our struggle in this life, is actually a serious issue. In 2014, there was a study of five to ten-year-olds in the UK, when they were asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? Well, these are the top answers, and train driver isn't in there. Number one, just want to be rich. That's what most five to ten-year-olds in the UK want to be. Number two, famous. There is some hope, because number three was police officer for some reason. So do you see? The nature of the world around us feeds our young people to say, you need to be rich and famous. That's why we've got to be very careful about what we're feeding our children. I don't mean kale and organic tofu. I mean, what messages are we streaming into their consciousness? And not just through the television, or through their tablets, or their smartphones, but but by what we talk about. What we worry about. See, it doesn't have to be sort of the glitz of Made in Chelsea or the fame of the X Factor. It can simply be the way we lead our children to expect that this world is all there is. That the best thing they can hope for is this life. You see, we have divided hearts because we actually love the world. And we're too comfortable with the messages of the world around us. Whereas the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says this of Christians, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. One of the uh, delightful things about Christmas is the anticipation of children, isn't it? That, That excitement as it comes to the opening of their presents don't know what it's like in your house. Sometimes it reaches fever pitch at four o'clock in the morning when they come charging into your bedroom and you tell them to go away with full of Christmas joy and spirit until it gets light. Uh, sadly, uh, as adults, we often lose that excitement, that anticipation, mainly because we know what we're getting and sometimes we've even wrapped it ourselves. But even more special, the anticipation on the faces of children... It's that joy when they're present exceeds their expectations. It's even better than they dreamed. Well, God, his love is so great for us that he's going to give us something far better than the best thing we can dream of in this world. He's going to fill us with a love and a joy beyond our wildest dreams. An experience of relationship that we cannot imagine. In a perfect new creation. I have a friend who describes it like this. He says, Imagine the best moment in your life so far. A, a moment of complete happiness. Maybe you're uh, holding your first baby just after it was born. Maybe saying, I will, while staring into the eyes of your partner. Maybe uh, laughing yourself silly with a, a group of friends in front of a great film then take that moment and magnify it by infinity and extend it for eternity and you have just a little taster of what it will be like to live in God's new creation forever you see our love of this world is a perspective problem that's why paul can say in romans 8:18 8, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Or he says again in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. If you or I had scales that weighed the value of life accurately, we would see that The light and momentary troubles, the the things that cause us to doubt now whether it's worth it, don't even compare to the glory to come. The cost of Christ now compared to the beauty of what we'll have in the future, it's not even worth weighing up. And that brings us to how we fight our double-mindedness. You see, if we doubt it's worth it because we've got a divided heart, because we have an enemy, the devil, who keeps telling us that it's not worth it, And because we desire the world around us and want to fit in like everyone else, how do we conquer that? What hope is there of progress? Well, three things briefly. Here's the first one. Fix your eyes on the future. And That's the very next thing Paul says to do. Having said, look, the the future, the glory to come, it's, it's completely beyond the best thing you can imagine now. He says in verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 4, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. You see, if the danger is that our doubts are increased because we fix our eyes on what this world has to offer, and that just leads us to believe that following Christ isn't worth it. Paul says, no, fix your eyes onto the unseen future with Christ. Talk more of what it's going to be like forever in a perfect new creation. Not just in the midst of physical suffering or early death, but day to day. Talk more of what it would be like to dance in the presence of our Saviour to bask in the radiance of his love, to marvel at the glory of his majesty, to wonder as one who stares upon the beauty of the Lamb who was slain for you. Now, Christmas is probably the worst time of year for fanning into flame the demands of the world in our hearts. Our kids compare themselves to others. We think we're being bad parents unless we spend a, just that bit more in their presence. Life becomes orientated around self-indulgence in terms of food time stuff shopping for it eating it opening it so it maybe a good thing to ask yourself as you seek to fix your eyes on the future might be this apart from church attendance how does your christmas look different from your non-christian neighbor apart from church attendance how does your christmas look different from your non-christian christian neighbor an Advent, actually, in the church's year, in the good old Church of England, is traditionally a time when we look forward to the return of Christ. That's why we've been doing Matthew 25 in the morning. It might be a good challenge to us if you're a parent like me or you're a grandparent. How could we help our children to be looking forward more to being with Jesus this Christmas time? How can we help that to be the desire of their heart? Fix your eyes on the future. Here's the second thing to do. Flee to God in the present. That's where we are in James 4, isn't it? James says, in the light of this double-mindedness, what do we do? This doubt? Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. It's if we proudly think, Well, I know what's best and I know what I need. Well, the danger is that we set ourselves against God. But if we come humbly to Him, if we accept the priorities He lays out for us in His Word, well then we will find that our double-mindedness begins to fade slightly. I love the way the Bible works. The Bible doesn't say, flee the devil, full stop, does it? No, it says, submit yourself to God, and that's the way you resist the devil. And the devil's just going to flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. In other words, in the midst of your doubt, proactively seek the Lord draw close to him in, in word and prayer C- cry to God to reveal more of himself to you enjoy a, a day-by-day intimate relationship with him I'm putting it very simply if we're people who daily don't draw near to God by opening up the Bible daily and calling upon him in prayer daily we will find the battle to believe that it's worth following Jesus Christ harder and harder. Uh, with God, absence does not make the heart grow fonder. Flee to God. And here's the last thing. The power to do that is found at the cross. Find the power at the cross. Find the power at the cross. The, the Apostle Paul says at the end of his letter to the Galatians, in Galatians 6.14, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The Galatian church, the the Christians in Galatia, they've been tempted to boast in their religious rule keeping. That's what the world does it boasts in who you are, in what you've achieved in what you've got, in how big your house is, or how important your job is, or how many Facebook friends you have. In the end, the world says, boast in you. And if you doubt that Christ is enough for you, then you'll need to find something else. And that something else will always be centred on you. In the end, all of our idols, all of the false things that we worship are manifestations of us making us feel better about ourselves. But the power of the cross destroys that need. It destroys the demands of the world that that tell you, you have to make yourself someone so that other people think well of you. Because the cross tells you, you are loved by a great saviour. And though there was nothing that you could do to make yourself worthy of his love, he did everything necessary that you would know his love. And if you, you humble yourself at the foot of the cross, if you admit that you come only as a sinner, actually you find a treasure that is worth giving all of your life for. You find the Son of God. Who gave up everything for you That you might have everything from him You find the one that you've despised and rejected Who loves you with an everlasting love You find the one who you owe an enormous debt to Who has given his life for you with a priceless love You see in the end All of our doubts about whether it's worth following Jesus Christ or not are answered by the person of Christ Himself. But by seeing how precious we are to Him, by seeing how loved we are by Him. In the end, all of our doubts, all of our doubts find their answer at the foot of the cross. Because it's there that we know that god has demonstrated his love for us once and for all and it's there that we know that he is for us and nothing in this life will compare to the what the one who's died for us will give us if he's given us his one and only son let's pray together Our Father in heaven, we, we know even today, I know even today, that we have doubted whether it's worth obeying you wholeheartedly. We've doubted whether the Lord Jesus Christ really is sufficient for us. We've doubted whether you really will provide all that we need. We've listened to the worries that come from within us. We've listened to the lies that come from the devil. We've looked with a bit of envy on the world around us. Please forgive us. Please fix our eyes on the glorious future that is ours in Christ. Please, would we flee to you now in the present and enjoy that intimate relationship with you that comes to us through Christ. And please take us to the foot of the cross. And will we see the precious love that you have shown us in Christ. That love that is a treasure worth all of our lives. For Jesus' name's sake. Amen.